Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is first to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. I am a fighter, and not a fighter. I don't think I know. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day and welcome to another Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. I'm, of course, Mark Kenny. And can I start by just paying tribute to the life and contribution of former Labor leader, opposition leader from uh, 2001 to 2003, Simon Crean, who sadly uh, died very suddenly in uh, whilst travelling in Germany just in the last few days. And a real shock to the Australian community, the Australian political community, the Labor Party, and of course, uh, not least his, his family and those close to him. Uh, Crean was a highly respected figure, and there have been tributes uh, coming from a number of different directions, including from the other side of politics. And uh, uh, my colleagues here on the, on the podcast may have some things they want to say to that in a moment as well. Uh, joining me, uh, as I say, is my colleague and friend, Dr. Maria Tflaga, who's with us each week, a political scientist, senior lecturer in the School of Politics and International Relations. Hi, Maria. Hello, Mark. Hi, everyone. It was a sad thing, really, wasn't it, to uh, to hear of Simon Crean's passing? I, I suppose uh, some younger listeners will be less aware of who he was. Uh, things moved pretty quickly, and he, he departed politics, really, I think, in um, uh, the early part of the previous decade, um, you know, as Labor kind of went through the, the, the final dramatic stages of what was really a decade of instability and meltdowns. That's right. And, and if anything, actually, the start of his leadership m- might have been the sort of first act yes. of, of that decade of, of instability. Um, yeah. yeah. In fact, I have a piece on the conversation uh, making that very point that it, it, it did feel to me like, uh, you know, looking at it in hindsight, that he was the first domino to fall, really. And he became the first Labor leader not to, you know, to be denied the chance of of, uh, of fighting an election as Labor leader, to be put in place and then denied a chance to um, to contest an election. And the leaders he was replaced by, um, there was a whole series of similar kind of ructions. Um, he was replaced by Mark Latham, one of the more curious decisions in Australian political history and, of course, disastrous in electoral terms. And then Beasley came back for like a third crack at it. He didn't get a third crack at it because uh, he was replaced by Rudd. Rudd didn't then get a chance to fight the election as a sitting prime minister because he was replaced by Gillard, who was not given a chance to fight a subsequent election other than the one she had to fight pretty well immediately once she took over the leadership uh, because Rudd came back and um, really yeah, things t- didn't settle down in the Labor Party really until until they were in opposition and, and, and everyone kind of lined up in a row behind Bill Shorten. That's right. I mean, it basically took Labor a, a decade to learn to learn that lesson. To relearn what, what, what they'd learned before. Um, also with us is David Spears, of course, host of Insiders, former Press Gallery uh, Journalist of the Year and uh, numerous other accolades that I could apply to. And welcome, <laughs> Dave. Welcome back, I should say. Thank you both very much. Good. Great to be here. And joining us also is Senator Barbara Pocock, a Green Senator from South Australia, a, an interrogator extraordinaire of, uh, of PWC uh, in the scandal that's been um, running now for a little while. Welcome also back to you, Barbara, because you've been on here before as well. I have, and it's great to be back, Mark. Good to be here. Uh, any reflections uh, anyone else wanted to make about Simon Crean just uh, before we kick off on, on other matters? Yeah, look, I uh, I was in the gallery covering Simon Crean's leadership from start to finish. Uh, really sad moment this week and, and quite a shock. Um, yeah, look, I remember him as uh, interviewed him many, many times, uh, a, a, a serious figure in mm. politics, someone who had 
grown up, of course, in, in politics, given his father's role. His life had been about getting to that point. You know, I remember going on uh, uh, trade delegation trips with him as trade minister to India and, and Shanghai, and he loved that aspect uh, of yeah. the work as well. And I remember going to places with uh, with Simon Crean back back then. But I mean, a lot of focus this week, I think, rightly on the moral courage he showed on the Iraq War in opposing that. Yeah, um, a lot's been said about that. I'd al- I'd also note he took on a couple of other courageous battles. One was internal. Yes, uh, in the Labor Party to reduce the union control over the Labor Party from and sixty that, forty to fifty fifty. Yeah, and that was really significant because he came from the union. He movement. came from he was the a former, ACTU. former head of the Stormont and Packers Union. Yep. And then he was president of the ACTU. His his bona fides were very sort of union based. Yeah. Uh, m- and, much more so than say Albanese, who who's there now. Well, that's right. And reducing the union influence in the Labor conference to 50-50 rather than 60-40 did cost him some They support. came for him. Let's be honest. And they now, came now, for yeah, him. And look, oh. look at where things ended up. Um, also, the, the 40-40-20 uh, quotas as well happened at that special Labor conference for getting more women yep. into Parliament. We see the benefits of that now in Labor. So, yeah, there's a lot of things he did. Obviously, um, he, he, he didn't cut through or appeal enough, whatever the word you want to use is, in terms of a leader. Uh, and you touched on the the, the, the train of leadership mm. chaos that followed. I think it's right to say, certainly in my view, that the seeds of Labor's failure in government under Rudd and Gillard really um, sit in that period where they started to churn through um, Crean, Beasley, Latham. And Crean was in large part responsible for getting the numbers for Mark Latham to become leader and blocking Kim Beasley. So yeah. yes, all of that was a you know a, a problem that then uh, we saw play out when they finally did get to govern. That culture of churning through leaders was the real problem for them. But look, yeah, he did a lot of good internally uh, and, as a, and as a minister publicly as well. And then afterwards as well, he really continued that sort of international yep. representation role. Uh, I, I certainly um, met him a few times in, in places uh, abroad. Uh, in his, uh, you know, when he was carrying out capacities as the, I think he was chair of the Australia Europe Business, Business Council, Council yeah, mm-hmm. or Europe Australia Business Council, I think it's called. Um, yes, Barbara, any thoughts? Uh, well, I've been reflecting on the high price that people pay, you know, in living a life of political, uh, public contribution. You know, I really feel for his family there to lose him at seventy-four, having, you know given probably a lot as a family to mm. public life. I, I, often people look to, you know, those years of re- retirement are a bit slower time together and in your community with your family. So, you know, that's what I've been thinking about and clearly real a real loss for his community and his family. Yeah, absolutely. And I might just say and on a personal note, I really liked him. I mean, he was mm-hmm. always good-natured, always up for a laugh, um, very well, respectful. Yeah, one of those... Those policies, and there are some, but not all, uh, who you can do a really tough interview with, mm. but they respect it. They respect your role as a journalist. They respect what yeah. they're doing, and you can get on with it and still have you know good dialogue. Yeah. Oh, a professional. <laughs> <laughs> they do exist. Well, it it, it 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 matters because it is it is the machine that you're mm. part of, and. Uh, journalists have a role to play, and it's not about uh, you know mm. ducking the issues or playing favourites on the basis of of um, you know kind of personal affections or whatever. So let that be a lesson to you, Barbara Pocock, <laughs> with what's coming next. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> um, th- th- on that go though, hard. yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, let me go hard with this penetrating question to you: um, the PwC scandal. Just give us a sort of a, a very a kind of a postage stamp size explanation of how this came about, because you've played this um, in a very prominent role, sitting there in uh, in, in Senate Estimates Committees uh, probing uh, this, and I just wonder if you could just explain the sort of background of this, how it came about. Well, I guess the key thing uh, that has really given this momentum is um, the very corrupt set of events where um, people within the tax branch of PwC, which is a very large entity, um, were consulted around uh, changes um, to our multinational tax avoidance arrangements. They were asked as people who knew how big companies avoided tax uh, to advise on how to make it work properly. Yeah, just to advise the government, right? To advise, to advise the, the government, government yeah. um, through inside treasury. And um, this particular character, Peter Collins, signed three confidentiality agreements with treasury between 2013 and 2018 and proceeded to um, harvest that information with very large multinational clients and build the client base of PwC and earn fees by selling that information essentially. So very traitorous act. Um, And 
one that has become this is this was eight years ago that it occurred but it's taken a long time for uh the consequences for the uh, mechanics of this failure to emerge and it's clear that there was a failure not only in that first instance of of ethical practice but clearly a failure of management and an internal problem across this very large organization with over 9000 employees 900 partners um, you know a, a massive corporate fail a case study in how not to do something in the first instance and then not how to how to not deal with it properly uh, in the years since especially in recent months yeah so it's like essentially getting paid by the government to advise on the most um, effective ways they donated of donated that time they, yeah. were, they weren't paid for it it was oh, they, they donated at that time yes it was a as i understand it it was you know come come and advise us mm. about how this works which is a, you know something with a much prized opportunity for people who are inside big consultancies because many of them will use the the fact that they are used by government in that way as a positive attribute right. okay mm. so what, and that's an important point isn't it mm. it wasn't a contract per se to give that advice they were just called in because of their expertise to advise tax do we know? I know the pursuit of all of this is still ongoing, Senator. But um, Peter Collins, you mentioned there. What about the others? The, the culpability. Um, do we know much about? You know, can can you give us a sense yet about how many others uh, and, and what they did, what the wrongdoing entails, as far as you're aware at the moment? Well, I've read uh, the. You know, what really brought this to the fore was the release of email exchanges between PwC partners and employees as they monetized this information amongst their clients base and uh, tax tried pretty hard uh, once they they knew within 24 hours of the changes in tax being announced in the budget in 2015 they knew uh, that something was afoot um, well they didn't know instantly actually but immediately the tax changes were announced by Joe Hockey um, the next day, PwC went to work amongst its clients list and emailed out, you know, we can help you with this. Hmm. Um, and we, then we can, Just to be clear, we can help you find ways to get around yeah, these, this help, new fence. We've got a workaround for this. Yeah. And, um, and, yeah, and they made $2.5 out of that workaround offer, at least, probably more. Um, and over time, tax became aware this is happening way too quickly. What's going on here? Um and they were unable because PwC incredibly aggressively used um, professional legal privilege to prevent the tax office from getting to the facts of the matter. They did that with tens of thousands of claims of professional legal privilege, which means, you know, their legal counsel clearly uh, and many senior manager, managers are involved in a set of decisions mm. and a strategy around this item. So um, you're asking, David, who was involved? Well, many people mm. were, obviously many partners, um, and these email exchanges, which are redacted in terms of who, who was receiving or sending the email, show there are a lot of people involved in PwC. And there's a lot of information emerging. I'm getting uh, whistleblower emails every day mm. from people within PwC and the other big four um, saying, naming people, um, and it's clearly uh, a real odour across the senior management of PwC. It seems like there was a real kind of, I mean, you mentioned there were a lot of people involved. I mean, that that in itself speaks to a sort of a looseness, a kind of almost a, a, a sort of a, a cavalier nature of the way this privileged information is being used. I mean, people are almost boasting to each other about mm. uh, the fact that they've got this inside knowledge and are able then to, as you say, kind of advise their clients and thus monetize this inside of information. I mean, that is that is both a, a a disaster in the particular, but it's also a broader cultural problem, isn't it? It suggests uh, oh. suggests something really dark. Well, and also when you read the emails, they have such a disparaging approach to the ATO and and Treasury, um, which I found really shocking. You know, I'll give him a call and find out exactly what date the law will become law. You know, they mm. they had people they felt were on tap to them within the public sector and absolutely boastful about the opportunities for themselves, which, you know, it's, it curdles your, your gut. It's really upsetting to think people 
have captured um, really significant institutions and took eight years to play out. You know, we now know many of us much more than we ever thought we would about the Tax Practitioners Board, for example, <laughs> which is where, um, you know, this actually finally a crunch point came mm. and someone paid a price. Peter Collins lost his tax agent status for two years and PwC was told to train its staff in ethics. Can you believe? So- I mean... Incredible. I mean, I think that's actually um, a really the interesting flip side to this whole story, right? Which is proper processes set up by government in effect to, I, I assume, pr- protect privacy or to protect the commercial interests of business entities or whatever. But can you kind of explain for listeners like how that actually worked against this scandal becoming public? Well, I now have in my head, having listened to a number of days of evidence and really um, a lot of evidence in estimates, I have a vision of our tax machinery as being a series of silos. You know, there's a silo in Treasury that sets policy. There's a silo within the ATO that does the mechanics of tax collection. There's the Tax Practitioners Board over here with a piece of legislation about how they're meant to license tax advisors. Then there's, you know, a board of taxation over here offering a bit of policy. There's all these kind of silos of behaviour and action, none of which talk effectively to each other. And where are the ministers? Where is the government in this? We're told no one told the Treasurer anything at any point until the 22nd of December last year. I find that very hard to believe. But beneath that, across these silos of tax mechanics and architecture, they say they were prevented by secrecy provisions from, for example, sharing clearly they had concerns about key people, tax had concerns about people uh, within uh, PwC, Peter Collins' name, for example, um, on a confidentiality agreement. Too slow. The mechanics were broken um, and we need to fix a lot of that stuff. And I think it's on the government's agenda to do it. So is there a consensus amongst the committee about how that should be done or is this really something that the government will take forward? Are there differences of opinion? Look, at the moment, this is my feeling is uh, there is absolute unanimity about this is a terrible scandal and it reveals a lot of weakness in the architecture of tax. Um, And more broadly, how have we grown this industry of consulting tax and audit to a multi-billion dollar operation and eroded our public sector so seriously? We haven't got down into the nitty gritty of reform, though I've got some very clear ideas and I'm sure others do too. But every time we go to kind of consider where to go further, we find a new scandal emerging. You know, um, we, we're hearing of some really extraordinary practices emerging through assertive, excellent journalism, um, bringing to fore the, fore the fact that, you know, in the case of um, the education sector, PwC was both advising on policy level regulation as well as buying up Um, you know, equity in firms that were subject to that regulation. So people Mm. privately profiting, essentially a form of insider trading. Mm. There's a whole lot of um, issues that I found deeply shocking, actually, so unethical. Senator, can I just invite you to tease out the reform ideas that you at least are starting to form on this? It sounds, listening to you, that a lot of the problem here goes to transparency um, we do have specialist agencies like the Tax Practitioners Board that can, you know, obviously have you know, a specialist focus on on what they focus on, and another body might be doing something else. And you need to connect them up. They need to be transparent enough to be able to share with themselves. Let alone the Minister of the Day. It is alarming that the Treasurer of the Day, Josh Frydenberg, it was, uh, wasn't or arguably couldn't even be told about some of what was going on. What sort of reform? What sort of change? can deliver the sort of transparency that we need. Yes, you know, government's talking about winding back the use of consultants and and, and so on, but they're still going to be there. Is there a need that if, if they take on government work, they need to be accountable to even um, Senate committees like your own? Mm. A very interesting question, David. I mean, that's really where we need to go. But just before we go to fixing things for the future, I do think we need to talk seriously about punishment for recent events. Mm. And so far, we've got pretty light touch consequences for PwC. Sure, they're suffering. They're losing government contracts hand over fist. um, And that is a massive challenge to their business model. But so far, 
um, a, a widespread scandal within their 900 group of partners has not had consequences. And my view is that they should have their tax registration status, because that's where the rot was, removed for a couple of years, and a serious consequence for them as a partnership. There's been a fall guy strategy there. Um, where Peter Collins has taken the rap, but there is a massive problem within that organisation. And without mm. consequences, what are we saying to people in the future about um, this kind of behaviour? We, we really need to have people pay attention to a financial penalty and there hasn't been one yet. Well, now, they now they're selling criminal. off the, the government arm of their business, right? Exactly, exactly. And that is a – we can talk about that, but just before we go got to got a that, good price um, for it at least, $1. $1. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, we need some consequences. And, you know, that, there are criminal acts in here. There need to be criminal penalties. These are This is the equivalent of, you know, what ordinary mortals, you or I would pay major fines, possibly face a jail term if we did serious tax fraud. Well, there are no consequences yet there. So that needs to be cleaned up. Looking to the future, there's a bunch of things I think we need to do. Certainly need to allow tax um, policing structures to talk to each other and to have a responsibility to take this kind of behaviour to their minister and to the government. It shouldn't be allowed to fester. And I am really concerned about a culture uh, beyond fixing, you know, the structure, a culture of don't ask, don't tell. I think we definitely had had signs of that between between tax, certainly, and um, so others. between the, between the public sector and the private sector, for example, yeah, in that and relationship. within the public within right. the public sector, and across I, I feel it, yeah. like you know there no doubt were people who were very concerned about what they thought was probably happening, um, but it was kept pretty quiet. And it, you know, to decide not to tell the minister that major fraud was underway is really a, um, a bad decision, and we should be enabling mm. that rather than preventing it from following through. We need to uh, look at the secrecy provisions and the government is doing that too, to try and enable a more open consideration of poor behaviour or when things have gone off the rails. I also think there's some big issues here about breaking the link between um, being a consultant to government um, and at the same time being a donor. Um, there's yeah. a strong there's a perception of conflict of interest, if not, you know, there's not brown ba- bags of money changing hands here. We've, you know, we're not that kind of democracy uh, yet. Let's hope we never are. But there certainly are challenges where, you know, these consultants give quite a bit of money and non-direct money as well through events and other forms of sponsorship. So I think we need to break. If you're, if you're a consultant to government, I don't think you should be a donor. Yeah, uh, to pol- political just like process. if you're a developer in some states, for example, you yeah. can't do that. Yeah, um, is, is, do you harbour concerns about the possibility of this dysfunctional or this um, nefarious culture existing beyond PwC? Absolutely, I can show you volumes of whistleblower. Are you getting, are you getting whistleblower yeah. information about Absolutely. other members of the Big Four? Yes. Absolutely. Um, Say so, uh, with specific examples. Um, and and the, what we're looking at is conglomerates with a built-in structural conflict of interest. And what happens now? Does that mean that you refer those to the uh, to the um, whatever it is, the tax registration board, or do you take up this as a um, as, as a parliament as a parliamentary? These conflicts of interest that I'm talking about within the Big Four and the Big Seven are not. Uh, of the kind that of, of tax, uh, re, you know, misusing confidential tax information. That was a very. But we specific- don't. But presumably, you don't know that similar things aren't going on. Yes, that is true. Yeah. That is true. But we are very aware, and we're certainly they're on the public record. For example, in KPMG, a famous case in the New South Wales government around the valuation of uh, railway assets in the Tahi case. Um, and the other egre- egregious example in KPMG was uh, the cheating of 1,100 of their staff on ethics testing over four years, which resulted in a massive fine in the US. We haven't it was the behaviour occurred in Australia, but it was never punished by our regulatory machinery in Australia. So there are some really significant. We've heard evidence already on that from KPMG as a as a Senate committee, um, and the internal conflicts of interest. There are many examples of them. So I think we have got some structural problems around the partnership model. It's way less transparent than a corporate model. Um, Partnerships are required to show to the Australian public their revenue, but they aren't held accountable about a whole range of other matters like proper governance, um, how they reward and remunerate uh, their managers. It's, It's very opaque governance 
And um, I'm reading a lot in my mailbox about what that does to the internal culture of big organisations. Whistleblowers have a very tough time. They are driven out and the partnership's interest, this is what I'm hearing mm. from people. I've never worked in one of these companies, but, you know, it really matters the kind of, for honesty about practice, that, you know, you have uh, ways of dealing with matters like uh, unethical behaviour. So, yes, I am concerned about all of these big companies. And it's a global problem. It's not just a problem in Australia. In 2013, the British Parliament had a very similar tax, unethical tax breach by the big four, each of them, uh, in using tax information to uh, uh, advise clients on avoiding tax. So, you know, it's a big problem, um, but, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a well-governed country and these big four and their relationships with government and their internal conflicts of interest, their value for money, they're not well-governed in my view. Uh, Senator Pocock, can I just uh, throw you a question without notice now, changing subject, because I know you have to go. And I just thought I'd um, invite you to reflect on uh, the fact that yesterday, as we record, this was the 10-year anniversary of Julia Gillard's departure as, as Prime Minister. And I, I wonder whether you have any thoughts about um, where, how history looks at her Prime Ministership now, but also, I suppose, whether you know what, what has changed in that decade since. Mm. Oh, Mark, that's such a big question. It is. I know. I'm sorry to throw it to you without notice. Especially after the last two weeks in Parliament. Mm. Um, I'm I'm particularly thinking about um, the awful events around assault and the the failure of our Parliament to really still properly manage and and that we still see events in recent years um, of, of assault of women and poor handling of the consequences of it. And I know that's not what Julia's, um, Gillard's prime ministership was about. She did many things. But when I look at it through the lens of recent years, this last decade, I see a woman and a leader who suffered a terrible price uh, of misogyny. And I think, you know, as a country, my goodness, um, what a what a lost leadership um, and a price we've paid for our culture in politics. You know, and I sat there in Parliament last fortnight thinking, how far have we really come? You know, there's, there is now, uh, you know, an authority, PWSS, for women to go to if they are harassed inside Parliament House. But, you know, I, you know, Senator, we, we, I was really sorry and sad that that odour of the mistreatment of women still affects people inside the chamber. Now, Julia Gillard and her legacy um, are not only about that matter, but that was on my mind, I have to say, in the, think, reflecting on the last decade and recent weeks. Yeah, I think um, that's a very good way of summing it up. It's almost as if Julia Gillard, we sort of opened a box, but we still haven't actually sorted out all the ugly things within it. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Um, Barbara Pocock, thanks so much for being with us on Democracy Sausage. We haven't. There's, there's a number of other things that we'll have to talk with you about another time. The the, the relationship between the Greens and the, and the Labor Party, which has um, been sort of uh, fractious at times. Perhaps it's a little more civil in the Senate um, than it is in the House at the moment. We're very but, civil. Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, and, yes, I've, I've seen. Tension. I've seen some of the civility just lately in the Senate. Yes, I'm not sure I would have called it that. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks so much for being with us again on Democracy Sausage, and we'll look forward to talking to you again another time. Thanks, Senator. Thanks. Thanks, Mark, Maria and David. Bye. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
Welcome back to Democracy Sausage from the Australian National University. Now, before we go on and talk about some other things and pick up one or two of the themes we were talking about there with uh, with Barbara Pocock, uh, let me just uh, ask you this question. Do you know any inspiring ANU alumni who deserve recognition for their achievements? Nominations for the 2023 ANU Alumni Awards are closing soon. In fact, I think uh, within days. So you can nominate someone who has inspired you or if you've got a great story to share, nominate yourself. We'd love to hear it. We're particularly keen to see nominations in the Indigenous Alum of the Year and the current student volunteer categories. ANU alumni are leaders in Australia and around the world, and this is a great opportunity to highlight their achievements. Category finalists are invited to the awards presentation night in November. It's a very, very salubrious thing. Search for ANU Alumni Awards or click the link in the show notes here to uh, to nominate and uh, really would encourage you to do that. Nominations for these awards close at midnight on Tuesday, 4th of July. So that's probably not far away, uh, depending on where you're listening. It may even be yesterday. Hopefully not. Um, so... Uh, I have with me uh, Dr. Maria Tafaga and David Spears, um, and we've just been talking before with Barbara Pocock, uh, the Green Senator, about the PwC matter mostly. I guess that you know raises a number of different uh, questions that whole issue, and we've we've covered it a fair bit. But uh, just, what about on 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 Julia Gillard? It, it, it's interesting thinking back uh, ten years. Um, I was thinking back earlier. We all were about Simon Crean's contribution, but you know, ten years since Julia Gillard left that job, Maria, um, it. Uh, it it was, as you were saying, a, a tumultuous period for Labor, both in opposition and then in government. And that really, that tumult was really the sort of biggest characteristic, the defining weakness, really, of that period for Labor. Uh, the instability, the factionalism, the competition, the scheming, um, and the leadership changes that resulted from it, of which she was initially a beneficiary and then quite quickly, really, in historical terms, a victim. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, it was an absolutely exhausting time. Yeah. Um, uh, Demoralizing too. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. I always thought, I mean, I because I was, I was working as a researcher in the gallery at that time and I was there when she resigned and I still remember what she said, which was that gender doesn't explain everything, but mm. it doesn't explain nothing. And I think that that remains actually a really apt description of um, her time as Prime Minister. And, um, you know, there was all of that Lady Macbeth imagery around her and one of the things that, and, you know, and I mean, like, yes, she was ambitious and, uh, you know, quite clearly um, she made a call which she might um, she might have regretted at some points. I'm sure she doesn't now because that doesn't seem to be like her style. Mm. But one of the things that I found really interesting about that whole time is that if she had been a man, I think Rudd would have just been considered a sore loser. And we kind of sort of see that with um, the sort of leadership ructions before and after, right, uh, where, you know, a rival who was so repudiated, I mean, you know, he didn't even contest that ballot in the end because I think he realised he really couldn't pull together more than 15 votes or a small number of votes in in a party which he had delivered office to after 11 and a half years of opposition, which kind of goes to some of the claims about the dysfunction of his office and his ability or inability to build a collegiate team, right? You know, I mean, that's sort of, that was sort of some of the substance of the claim. And the other half of it is, as you kind of say, right, like this sort of heightened palace court, court like drama with actors like who we don't talk about now who may or may not be working at Crown still, like Mark Arbib, <laughs> mm, Sam mm. Dastiari. I mean, Don Farrell is still there, right? But otherwise, um, y- you know, like, it it sort of was the sort of triumph of machine politics over, um, I suppose, thinking about kind of governance. And I think I think the final kind of interesting lesson from it all, I suppose, is is how Labor has chosen to act now. I suppose how much space there is now for. Uh, female coded issues to actually be considered core policy, which, you know, Gillard herself has a a, a patchy record on, which I think reflects the operating environment that she Mm. was operating in. Mm. Like the space actually had to be created to legitimise the care economy as a legitimate area of public policy that is not like a fringe issue. I think that's really yeah. beautifully put. And 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 it's interesting, isn't it, in that context, David, that 
you know, she was the prime minister who who, who bumped single parents back onto the lower unemployment rate. A, a, a decision that's now been substantially yeah, yeah. reversed, but it it was a real kind of um, seen at the time as hardly a, the act of a of a feminist inclined prime minister. No, and there was also um, the refusal to support same sex marriage. Uh, Indeed, as as well. Um, and look, some of these were a reality of the political constraints that she was constantly mm-hmm. under. Um, it is interesting to think back on that on that period. You know, the ten years since that that period. What's changed? I mean, look another policy thing often gets forgotten a little that she really championed, uh, I, I think compared to where Labor is now, is the Gonski education reforms mm-hmm. as well. Mm, and yes. in her post-prime ministerial life, this is education and particularly educating girls and women has been a big part of, yeah. of uh, a pretty stellar post-prime ministerial uh, period for uh, for Julia Gillard. But nowadays, Labor is a little reluctant, perhaps a little hamstrung by the, the budget situation to uh, go anywhere near as far as Julia Gillard wanted to go on education. I do think we, you know, what's changed in the 10 years since, obviously there's um, the big issue is the misogyny uh, and, and whether how she was treated would still happen today. I'm quite loath as a man to weigh in on whether life has really changed that much for women in politics. I do think some things, though, like the famous um, you know anti-carbon tax rally with the Ditch the Witch mm. and um, Bob Brown's bitch uh, mm. signs, I don't think you would see that today. I don't think. Well, I, if you did, I think the reaction to it would be very different today. It look, it was criticised at the time, but I think today it would be of, a, of another scale. Um, yeah, I think it's the kind of thing that would end careers now, whereas you know back then it was just par for the course. Yeah, and the misogyny speech she gave, um, and Mark, you'd remember this well too. At the time, it was very much viewed through the prism of what was going on with Peter Slipper and Julie yeah. Gillard defending Peter Slipper and putting him in as. Uh, to shore up the numbers, putting him in as speaker, you know, and yeah. all the scandals around him at the time. And, and the so Craig on. Thompson matter that had been burbling along yeah, as well. Yeah, it, it wasn't seen for what it became. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably fair to say about Julie Gillard's prime ministership. It wasn't seen at the time for what we now reflect on it as. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it. I think, I think that's right. Um, and I think the media's performance was was pretty patchy. I mean, the weakness, journalism is often described as the first draft of history. Mm. And it doesn't always get it right. It doesn't always get it right. And it stands very close as a, as a practice to those events, right? Both temporarily, that is in time, but also mm. uh, in space. I mean, you have to basically churn it out uh, for, without really having a dialogue with mm. the Australian people, seeing how issues are, are being received and understood to understand their kind of political weight. So a lot of judgments are made about it. And I think the judgment around the misogyny speech, for example, initially did see it in terms of the intrigue and machinations of parliament and where the government was. Um, but I do also think there was an, an incredibly coarse and 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 aggressive discourse that was run in some sections mm. of the media which oh, was absolutely. very much a function of of Gillard's well, she was gender. pursued for the bathroom renovations or yeah. something on that house and, <laughs> well but Just I know went it on, went on and on and on and and even before that I think perhaps even before she was leader um uh, you know there was the 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 picture of her in her house in um mm. and the in, empty food bowl and the empty fruit bowl yeah. as if this was some sort of metaphor for her being childless it was you know, really appalling, and a lot of men just didn't understand. I think all of these little, little signals and dog whistles, mm. and didn't understand why people were getting upset about them. Well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think they actually just reproduced them. You know, yeah. like I mean, her prime ministership was sort of seen, I think, by a lot of people in society as as an aberration, and and um, and that things would get back to normal. Mm. Uh, afterward, mm. you know, and I think one of the other sort of interesting things to sort of reflect on at the time, you know, you talk about the first draft, draft of history, um, and I think that's one of the things that has actually been taken forward, which is at the time kind of treating her neutrally or fairly mm. was kind of seen as the sort of correct or right thing to do. But but in in effect, all what it actually did was reproduce misogyny, right, and allow um, the... the um, the outright outrageous framings from some parts of the political debate um, to have like a like a, a not to have a counter, I suppose, mm. um, you know, and that's something that she herself, I think, has felt that she had miscalculated on, yeah, as well. Yeah, I think one of the, just one more point too on on that Gillard 
prime ministership um, that perhaps Anthony Albanese has learned from with some caution as well is remember the the carbon tax signing ceremony with with Bob Brown yeah. and we were talking about this on Insiders on the weekend where indeed we, yeah it goes to Labor's current reluctance yes they have to deal with the Greens they need the Greens to get things through the Senate but you won't constantly. see any joint press conferences but yeah yes the Gillard government got a lot of things done um, but did they last. The big stuff, no. A lot of it, no. Um, because they didn't have that longevity. Anthony Albanese wants to have longevity for mm. Labor in mm. this government. Uh, he'd like to be there as, as Prime Minister for as much of it, I'm sure, as possible. But that means being very far more cautious in how they deal with the Greens uh, in, in the Senate. Yeah, yeah, and if you notice, he calls them the Greens political party. Yeah, the GPP. All the time, <laughs> right? You know, which is basically a Student rhetorical- politicians and- Yeah, it's a rhetorical, like, smearing. Well, it's a reminder. What he's, Your what, politicians what, what, he's, he's, too. Yeah, he's yeah. long been of the view that they've got away with calling them, you know, being called the Greens and that, that their whole presentation has got away with being sort of anti-politics, anti-establishment. Mm. And he's saying, no, 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 you're playing the angles just like everyone else. You're looking at your electoral margins of advantage and, and, and speaking to your constituencies in ways that you think are going to maximise your electoral returns. Uh, and, and it is interesting because all political parties do that. Mm. And we know that Greens now have holdings in the lower house that, you know, they've quadrupled their holdings from one to four in the in the recent election, and it's going to be interesting to see. We already see a much more aggressive presentation from the Greens in that mm. lower house. You have to, as I've said on this podcast a number of times, you have to actually attract a much wider slice of the vote in a lower house seat mm. than you do to pick up a, you know a Senate quota across a whole state, and so. It, brings about a different kind of, of politics. And this is direct competition now with Labor in the inner cities. Mm-hmm. And and Albanese and Graindler and, and Plibersek in the seat of Sydney and others, they all know this. They feel the they feel the Greens breathing down their neck in these inner city seats. And I think this is a real fight and uh, and 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 when you know we're not seeing any backward steps, and I agree with you. I don't think we'll see any joint press conferences or no. or sort of formalised <laughs> agreements. Yeah, 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 that's right. The one uh, one final thing I'll say on Gillard though um, is that she's the standout for the post prime ministerial oh, yeah. performer. Hundred like, percent, like gracious. She, yeah. yeah, she's gracious. She's productive. Yeah, uh, constructive. Constructive. Um, she's uh, involved, of course, in the Global Institute for Women's Leadership uh, here at ANU, but also based at King's in in London, and uh, she um, has essentially stayed out of the fray. Um, uh, you remember Malcolm Turnbull's uh, term of uh, you know when he was going out the door saying saying some prime ministers are like miserable ghosts. I don't think you could say that about uh, Gillard uh, in any way notwithstanding that she left with a in, intensely rancorous circumstances. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah. points for that. It's kind of actually amazing how how little she has effectively taken personally, given her prime ministership was so deeply personal. It was. It was under siege, you know, really, for the it, whole time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it really was, internally and, and without. I mean, do we want to talk a bit more about the Greens and Labor or do we want to talk about something else? Well, I'm, if, you, if you want to make some points about that, do so. Yeah, yeah. I, I, do, I would like to get on to uh, Ukraine and, and, yeah. and, and Russia just have, for a moment before we leave. I have one political yep. science point if you want to. If you, Let's if get you into okay, it. Okay, so, okay. So on the Greens and, and, and Labor, right, Yeah. This, you know, this is a really interesting kind of change in their relationship, which is clearly going through you know, an, an evolution because the reality is is that the structure of the electorate is probably not going to see parties increasingly form majority governments unless they fiddle with the electoral system, right? So, but they hate each other. And and one of the ways we like to think about what parties do is we have this framework called policy office votes, which works better when you've got coalitions. And, and we can kind of see what the Greens are doing, right? Like, so on climate, they really pursued policy. They wanted that policy outcome. But on, on this stuff around renters, it really is about votes. It's about... It's it's about speaking to that constituency of young people, even if um, you know it's not. It's not kind of clear to me whether or not the Greens genuinely, in their heart of hearts, believe that a rent freeze is actually possible, implementable, or, or possibly even even effective. But it's not really about that. Mm. It's about 
building. Signaling. Exactly. And that's why it's frustrated labour so much Mm. because it actually doesn't exist in the world of policy. It's not actually really very easy to implement um, from the federal sphere. And then there's lots of questions over its actual efficacy. But it is a very kind of effective, I think, politically. And considering the amount of visceral anger amongst that cohort, I don't think it matters if Labor says it's not implementable. That group of people wants to hear someone say, I want to smash this system. Yeah, and in, I want to be in represented. Your interests. Yeah. Precisely. Right. And I think, you know, the reality of how we have talked about housing, it, it really hasn't represented this cohort. So um, it will be really interesting to see how Labor kind of treats that. I don't think, you know, rational arguments is going to fully uh, cut it. Yeah, it, it sort of. It's really well put. It, I think it, that's, it, that really nails where things are at. And, and I'm interested from to hear from both of you whether you think Labor's found the right line on renters. Well, I think they've found the orthodox line, but this is where I think there is a big weakness, um, and that is that Labor and the general sort of mainstream and conservative line is that a thing like a rent freeze is a distortion in a market that will have mm. you know a, a deleterious effects. The trouble is there are already distortions in this market and they've been baked in for a long time in favour of home ownership and home multiple home ownership mm. at that. And I think that needs to be actually recognised. This is not a level playing field. And I think a party stepping up and saying, we represent renters and we're going to start aggressively pursuing their interests, irrespective of what you say about what it will, you know, that it's a market distortion or whatever. Personally, I think there's a, there's a, there's a moral and electoral logic to that position. It's a competition with the status quo, but the status quo is rigged already. Mm. Exactly. It's not like the status quo is actually logical or rational or, or yeah, fair, you know. It's cultural. That's what it is. P- precisely, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it, look, I, I, I don't know where Labor can take this because it is true that a lot of this rests with the states and territories and, look, they can talk about um, strengthening renters' rights and encouraging the states to do that and, you know, uh, that that process is underway. Um, but they are also – um, boxed in on the things they can do, negative year and capital gains tax uh, reform. They've boxed themselves in. Yeah, they did. Uh, so much now on that um, that it's hard to see how they find a new line uh, on this because I think you're absolutely right. This yeah, is I a mean, real danger for them mm. in all of these seats. Uh, renters have, have had enough. Yeah, the Greens have tapped into that very cleverly. Because the thing about renters is they don't have much money uh, as a cohort mm. and they don't have any power. You know, they don't have any power in their relationship with their landlord. Really, it's a it's an it's an asymmetrical uh, power relationship, and they at the moment don't have any real political power. They're not part of the Australian dream, the Australian mm. ethos as as we've constructed it. And uh, the Greens are saying, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna stand for you," and it's smart in my view. Mm. And and they're not going to worry about the details too much. I think we were saying this the other day as well. Mm. They're not going to worry about the details too much, whether there's an argument about whether, about whether it can be done or can't be done. Because while ever there is a an argument, uh, you know, raging about representing renters' interests, then the Greens, I think, are moving forward politically. Because exactly. that, that's what people issue, are going to hear. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Let's uh, just very quickly, because we're running quite long today, but we've had t- such good discussions. Mm. Uh, let's just quickly touch on whatever the hell happened in Russia. <laughs> I've, I've been talking well, with a couple of political scientists uh, here over the last couple of days. No, but there is sort of, you know, there's a degree of cynicism about what it is that we know about it so far yeah. and who actually ends up being the beneficiary of it. And uh, I guess a couple of the people I've spoken to are. Um, trying to avoid wishful thinking and so talking about it yeah. as possibly being- I was talking to someone pretty senior in government last night. Uh, you know, From the Australian government's point of view, they still think Vladimir Putin is still very much in charge. Mm. But the, I think there is a lot of head scratching. You mm. look at Joe Biden's comments, European leaders' comments, I don't think anyone is terribly clear mm. about where things stand uh, I th- right Yeah, now. things are clearly very opaque. And I mean, I think the simplest- potential explanation of what has gone on here is that Prigozhin, that's the warlord, right, has um, made this ambient claim for power, possibly, um, you know, 
clearly in coalition with someone, right, or he's completely mad, and they haven't stepped up and left him exposed. But why that has happened is, you know, the stuff of like, you know, murky Game of Thrones mm-hmm. politics kind of stuff, right? Like is it is it that it's about his rivals in other parts of government? Because Prigozhin is Putin's creature, right? And so the fact that he has publicly um, moved against the the president is really damaging for for Putin's prestige. Well, but he it, says he hasn't. He says he's moved against the defense minister, and he never. I mean, he, there's a you know there's yeah. a bit of expl- post facto explanation. Absolutely, yeah. and and a lot of like post justification, and it's kind of interesting that that deal struck between like Lukashenko and Putin, who hate each other as well, right? So I, I actually think it is really damaging to. Putin's prestige that Lukashenko has brokered this deal in the first place, that, you know, Putin has come out and sort of said, like, this is like the 1917 revolution. This is a stab in the back. Like, this is a really emotive Yeah, language. and these, trees, these yeah, traders will, will pay. You know, and, yeah. then, and then, like, oh, I'm going to, um, you know, none of them will be punished, but now this morning is that they are going to be punished. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, there's probably a clock on Prigozhin's life. Like, let's face it. Um, Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Like, oh, well, yeah, but it, I mean, I, f- I feel like this is the end of Act Two. Yeah. Right. Like this has there's a there's a lot of implications that will ripple as a result of this. And and whilst I think Putin is absolutely still in control, his his he- like his hegemonic status is clearly weakened. You know? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, he's weakened by this. Yeah. The case for the war is weakened uh, by Prigozhin calling that out. Absolutely. Um, and what you know, what this does to, uh, well, I guess most immediately the morale of the frontline troops, be they Russian or Wagner mercenaries, yeah. you'd have to think that's absolutely yeah. shaken. The Russian people and the Russian elite in particular, uh, their confidence in Putin must be rattled yes. by all of this. I think the immediate fear is what does Putin do to show strength what does he do to demonstrate he is still very much in charge? That's the fear. Yeah. Yeah. In 30 seconds, did we do enough uh, with our latest tranche of uh, of aid for Ukraine? It's about $110 million worth of, of you know, vehicles and so forth, but they've been, been described a, yeah, as old yeah, vehicles. Yeah, there's been a fair bit of criticism. Look, some of the vehicles are pretty old, uh, the M113 troop carriers. Uh, the uh, special operations vehicles will be yeah. welcomed. The trucks will be welcomed. The ammunition will be welcomed. Obviously, Ukraine is going to still want more. They want Hawkeyes. They want yeah. Abrams tanks. Look, and from they, what I understand, the Hawkeyes, the, there's a couple of issues there. The braking mechanism, the parts, they can't easily be replaced. Defence has said, not a great. Look, the, the idea with a Hawkeye, it's kind of like if your tank is at one end of the spectrum, your Hawkeye is kind of at the other. It's light. It, it'd be... Um, Hell of a lot of fun to drive that around, right? Mm. It's, it's zippy, mm. but not very well protected. If it gets hit by something, forget mm. it. It's mm. game over. They're meant to be carried around on the battlefield by a Chinook helicopter and dropped in. That's not how Ukraine wanted to use them. So anyway, um, they'll keep asking for more. You can understand that. They're in a war. This is existential for them. Yeah. They're going to keep demanding more. Australia will keep providing more. I think this is it for now. Um, uh, yes, some criticism that it's that it's not enough. You know, I, 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 this is just another step. It's going to keep going, isn't it? It just worries me, though, that you know the the performance of a number of different uh, allies supporting or countries supporting Ukraine are sort of eking out their you know they're they're promising assistance, but that assistance is slow to come and and comes in relatively small increments, and it it allows the West to facilitate Ukraine's survival in the fight, one wonders whether it allows the Ukrainians, whether it facilitates Ukrainians actually decisively winning it and uh, whether speeding up, even if not increasing dramatically the amount of aid. Particularly now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, they don't have air support and so they'll actually be facing exactly the same kinds of difficulties but without air support Mm. that the Russians faced, right? You need three to one at least to win an offensive war. The Ukrainian government themselves have said that this counteroffensive this year is really phase one. Mm. So they, they know they need those. Yeah, it's mm. it's turned planes. out to be a much longer fight than a number of people, including no doubt Vladimir Putin and... Uh, yeah, well, he's uh, like 400 days into his three-day war. Yeah, so. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, look, been an absolutely terrific discussion as always. Um, mm. Thanks both of you, to both of you Thank again. You. Um, really, really enjoyed that. And uh, thanks also to Barbara Pocock, who we had in the first half. Uh, that's Democracy Sausage for this week. Um, you can contact us on our email, which is democracy sausage at anu.edu.au. 
And if I slow down, and that's because I always get it wrong. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's that's it for now. We'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Bye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.